What a Woman, conversations with powerful women who share powerful stories. This podcast was created by me, your host, Caroline Lyons, and my friend and producer, Sarah Benner, two mums searching for inspiration. And we hope you'll be inspired too. Welcome to the What A Woman podcast, Jackie. Thanks a million for having me. It's delighted, delighted to meet you. So you're a renowned broadcaster, uh, author of Girls Play 2. You're also an adjunct um, professor of uh, sports journalism. Um, And it's hot off the press, really, in the last few weeks that you're also going to be the new anchor for the iconic Sunday game. So congratulations on that. Thanks a million. Um, And I guess that's been a long time coming, I think, in in a way, hasn't it? Yeah, it's weird how things come full circle. For me, I probably thought it had passed me by. Um... Like years ago, I obviously was in for the job when Joanne Cantwell got the, the live position and I would have thought at that time that that job was going to be mine. Uh, it wasn't. And I just kind of had let it go. You know, it's something like that that you'd grown up watching that you thought was going to happen. It's weird when something is your dream and you realize it's not going to happen, the impact that it can have on you. For me, I actually was going to take a complete change of career. Like I thought that was kind of my, I had reached my ceiling in RTE after that and just couldn't really see that there was a future. But a couple of senior people there asked me to stay and just said, look, there will be other opportunities. It's very hard in the moment to see what those opportunities are. But one thing that I know in this job is that you do have to kind of just be patient and wait it out and amazing how it's kind of come full circle and all these years later here I am like I never would have thought that I'd be here again never you know genuinely it was gone it was I'd moved on I've been doing the rugby for the last few years and I adore doing that and I've never been happier in my career so I I genuinely didn't see it coming but it's it's very strange to be uh, back in this position again that's for sure yeah kind of serendipity also it it does show that you might think like you said really you are you were heartbroken at one stage when you didn't get this this job before years ago and you could have as you said you could have left RT everything could have gone a different direction but just to persevere be open to other opportunities and then it can, as you said, it can come right, come full circle. Did did you ever think about a career as a, as a, more as a professional athlete ever? It, it wasn't really uh, accessible for us in the way that it is now. And I, I don't know if I would have been good enough either. That's probably a part of it. But the other is it wasn't really a dream. Like, you know, young kids now can dream, particularly for young girls. I think, I mean, for boys, they could probably always dream of being a professional athlete because it was there. I think for girls certainly when I was growing up we had Sonia O'Sullivan and she was like our idol but that was kind of it there wasn't really and I was never going to be a cross-country runner it's not my profile but I do think that we saw her and thought oh wow that's amazing but I could never dream that I could be that you know whereas with Camogie I could see that the Cork team were really successful and I was like god I'd love to play for Cork and then luckily got to do that same with basketball I was like oh I can see a trajectory where I could play for the Irish basketball team great okay did that but that was kind of it. It was like, that was the end of the road for me. There wasn't really a professional league to look at. There wasn't really a life plan that would have involved me doing that. That's why sports journalism to me is the next best thing because that's what I saw. Okay, that's a really good way of being involved in sport. That, you know, that will keep you involved in the Olympics and World Cups and all those other things without playing in them. But I guess if I was 10 years younger, maybe my life, I would have seen things differently. 
Um, and that is for me probably the most encouraging thing that I see for young girls now that they genuinely can dream of being a professional athlete in whatever they want and not just soccer mm. like now we've got professional rugby we've got AFL in Australia loads of girls down there doing really well a lot of the Olympians like have a you know good strong livelihood out of playing sport and like that's a really really uh, amazing thing the last five years in particular has seen that space escalate so quickly that now for my five-year-old daughter she is going to have the world at her feet in terms of whatever she wants to be a singer an actress a doctor a musician you know a sports person Anything they want, they can have now. And that, to me, uh, is the greatest thing of all. There's nothing better than, than we can give our kids than a genuine ability to be whatever it is yeah. they want to be. And, like, sport, for me, is great, but I'm just glad that it's changed in a really, really positive way for the girls who've, who've come behind me. Yeah. And, I mean, you've seen firsthand as well the benefits girls can get. I mean, you, were, you have managed before the um, Ireland's women's mm-hmm. basketball team under 16. So I just wonder from that... That first-hand experience, what you saw girls getting out of it. Oh, it's massive. Like, the thing is, I think people see it for boys, that all fresh air and all it's good for boys to burn off steam. But why is it different for boys than it is for girls? Because actually the same things apply. Like, I've got an eight-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, and if they don't get outside for a minimum of an hour in the evening, they are like rats in here Mm -hmm. at night. So the same thing applies. You need to treat your kids the same and teach them the same values. And I think that's a big thing for parents to understand that what you give your son, you should give your daughter. And even if she hates it, just encourage her to get outside and play something. It doesn't have to be team sport. I'm just saying it's good to be active and you know to have a good, healthy lifestyle. That's part of it. The other thing I think really is just, I suppose for kids, the resilience that they learn in terms of like teamwork, problem solving, communicating, like these are skills for life. This is not just about being an elite athlete. Playing sport for girls is actually just, you know, we talked about resilience there. We talked about, you know, having a healthy life. It's actually just good for them in terms of like, you know, lots of them are going through issues with social media now and just body image and all of that stuff. Sport is actually really healthy for that because it allows girls to know that being strong is actually a really good thing and being sweaty is actually great because it means you're you're active and all that. So like I'd really encourage it for girls in particular that they have an outlet for all that because God, it's, it's a hard world for them now, you know? And I just think the more opportunities we give them to express themselves in somewhere outside of sitting in front of a, a, a class or a, you know, a screen or whatever it is, it's actually just like giving them access to the outdoors and, and doing something for themselves is enormous. And I think for girls in particular, the drop-off rates are huge. And it's a really, really worrying time that on those ages between 13 and 17 in particular seem to be a real problem age. And I think it's those ones that we really need to drill down on and just show them that, come here, when you're 23, you're going to be using those skills that you got when you were 14. But it's just helping girls to see that that's really important and and I don't think we're there yet. I think we've got a lot of work to do in that space. Yeah. Do you think, is there any anything you think we can be doing to keep girls in, in sport? Any tips you have? Well, I'll tell or... you the, big, the biggest thing that I have seen, right? And so it's grand for the elites, right? Let's say you talked about managing the Irish under-16s and all. That's grand because all those kids are elite. So they're going to play sport anyway. The biggest problem that I see is for the non-elites, right? So if you've got a son and he is 10 to 14... 
there's always a team for him. I'm pretty sure in most of these clubs, there's going to be an A team, a B team, a C team, and a D team. If you've got a daughter the same age, there's going to be an A team. There might be a B team. But after that, sorry, there's, we, don't, we just can't facilitate that. We don't have enough pitches. We don't have enough coaches. We don't have enough whatever it is. There is very little catering for girls who don't want to play for Ireland. It needs to be, let's get sport for all that's social. And a lot of that is actually down to, here's a tip I would give to parents. Let's just say you've got a daughter who loves playing Gaelic football, but she doesn't want to play for Dublin or Kerry or Cork or whatever. She just wants to knock around with her mates. If she's playing on the C team and suddenly they say, we actually don't have a coach for the C team and we can't get a pitch or whatever, it would be fantastic if some of the parents of that group would say, well, I'll coach the C team because there's loads of parents who want to volunteer to coach the A's. There's very few parents who want to volunteer to coach the B's and the C's and the D's and the E team maybe because they think that their kids are not into it. The biggest thing that I see with my kids is they're into it when I'm there. I coach both of my kids and I'm there on the sideline and both of them love it. But what they love is that I'm coaching them, that I'm there, that I'm having the crack with their friends' parents and that we're all involved. And I don't give a hoot if my kids are playing on the A team, the B team or the C team. I'll be there on the sideline. And I would say that to a lot of parents that don't feel that you can't get involved because you're not sure. Like I get a lot of parents saying to me, oh, but I didn't play and I feel a little unsure or whatever. At that age, when they're under 14, they're just looking for you to be there. They're just looking for you to give them a bit of guidance and have a bit of crack. It's not about winning a county. It's just about getting them playing. And actually for girls in particular, if they can see their mom or their dad on the sideline, and this is something that we all do as a family, there's a much better chance of that girl staying with sport when she's 17, 18. And to me, that's the biggest thing that we as a country need to do, that we need to make sure that sport is for everyone and not just for the elites, mm. because we're, we're driving people away in numbers by doing that. Yeah, I suppose one of the positives recently for girls in particular was the news that, that some of the teams um, here in Ireland are moving to away from white shorts Brilliant. to dark shorts. So Ireland's, the, the women's rugby team, I think, have gone to navy shorts. And that's another big thing. I mean, there's a, a survey, I think it was an Adidas survey, that said one in four girls will drop out simply because of concern about mm-hmm. when they have their periods and, and leakage and all this sort of just, you know, kind of embarrassment and worry about that. And it just, I mean, that's just such a positive and it's a really obvious thing, but it's, it's, it's taken time to happen. Well, you hit the nail on the head there. It's an obvious thing. Why did it take this long? You know, um, I, I there was a club in Dublin, Fox Rock Cabin Tealy, and they did this survey of their members and like that, they had the same thing. They had a 25% increase on numbers coming back after they changed the shorts colour. Like such a simple thing. And it brought kids back. And now they have so many more happy girls coming back to training, not worrying about these things. Because what have I noticed as well with girls of that age is they're embarrassed. You know, they're embarrassed about a lot of things. You know, they're going through a lot of changes in their life and it's very difficult. And a lot of their coaches were men. I don't really want to go and talk to a man and say this has happened and whatever, you know, whereas they're much more comfortable talking to each other or mm. somebody who's a peer of maybe just a couple of years older or maybe if there's a female coach involved, they might have an easier time talking to them. So by making these small adjustments, you're actually breaking down the barriers and letting them say, oh, I feel much more comfortable now. I'm definitely going to come back. But you're also making sure that the conversation is happening. So it's not just changing the color of the shorts. It's actually saying, we're talking about it. So if if anybody is on their period and they have an issue or they want to talk about their training schedules, like you're seeing apps now 
for the elite squads where they're managing their menstrual cycle and they're actually saying, okay, I'm not, I'm going to do a lighter load of training this day because it's day three of my period or whatever it is. And actually it's really healthy conversations that were never really happening in the public before. But now for young girls, if they're seeing that that's happening in the elite national squads where like the English women's team won the Euros last year and they're talking about periods and they're talking about getting rid of white shorts and all this is happening for young girls, if they're seeing that message, they're saying, okay, great, because that means I can tell my coach at under 10s that or under 12s that this is happening. And that's a really great thing, that we're encouraging them to be open about whatever the issues are that they're having. Yeah, let's just say there's, a, there's still kind of this bit of, they've been taboo, embarrassment yeah. over periods. So totally. it's great just to have yeah. it out. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's huge. The, one of the players from Amar that I was reading about where they, their team has changed the shorts and she was just saying, oh, it's just great, we, we feel listened to. And yeah. I thought... God, you know, you still in so many areas just don't feel we have a voice mm. over this is to do with our bodies. Yeah. Do you know what? The funny thing is before, I think women were afraid to speak out about certain things because they didn't want to be seen as whinging or particularly in the GAA, let's just say, where they weren't the same organization. And like all that is kind of happening now where there's going to be a merge and they're all going to be the same. But for a very long time, women felt that they weren't listened to and they couldn't whinge because they were getting so much from the GAA. Like, let's say, with instance of getting a pitch, they kind of had to go with their begging bowl all the time, saying, hey, is there any chance we could borrow that? And can we have this? And there was a lot of that. So then they felt like if they were whinging, that Mm. people would see it that way. And they'd be like, Jesus, aren't we doing enough for them or whatever? Whereas I think women now are like, well, okay, we've asked for this, this has happened, and now we're not afraid to call it out. And like, there's been lots of campaigns, 20 by 20, and this girl can in the UK, and a lot of these that have actually really empowered women to say, well, actually, that's not good enough. And I think you're seeing it more and more now, like even beyond sport with the Me Too movement and and everything that has happened since, it's actually just been a, a, a decision across the population where women have just said, actually, we can say no now. And that's been the most powerful mm. thing. And I think what you said there as well about girls and having sort of body image mm-hmm. is, is crucial as well, isn't it, for those teenagers? And I know when we spoke to Kira Griffin, who was who had captain the rugby the Ireland's rugby team, and she was saying that you know she was a bigger build as a as a girl, as a young girl, and she, you know, she kind of felt self conscious. Mm-hmm. But then on the pitch, this was this was you yeah, know, this this was great. This was this was celebrated because she was strong and powerful, and suddenly she found somewhere she felt she belonged. Yeah, and she could feel positive about her totally. her physicality, and that's so crucial, isn't it? Cause yeah. It, doesn't take much to it's amazing though because like Kira's a primary school teacher right and so if you think somebody like her and the power that she has on young kids when they see her captaining Ireland and you know the positivity that they say oh wow like look what my teacher can do you know that's an amazing thing for kids because they can genuinely see what local girl who's a farmer and a teacher and just a really normal person can do with their body and can take it to that level whereas I do think you're right kids before are probably you know like kids can tease and they can say things offhand that maybe they don't see but actually turning that into something powerful is amazing and all you need to do is be able to I think it's probably different because when Kira was growing up the Irish women's rugby team weren't on tv whereas now I think young girls can actually turn on the television and they can see the Irish rugby team playing and they can say well that girl looks like me maybe I could do that you know Mm -hmm. so whereas before I think the women that we were seeing on TV were not reflective of what society looked like whereas I think now 
there really is a body shape for everyone and a lot of girls can see that there's huge power in and that's not just in sport it's even in like ads on tv some of the clothing lines that you're seeing um being advertised it just looks different now and there's small subtle changes but that means it's more inclusive for young girls in terms of what they're seeing and what they can potentially be which i think is massive for kids it's a really good point yeah um i suppose the other good, the other big thing I have been keeping girls in sport and encouraging them as well as all kids is is getting behind the games, the fans supporting, and um, it was great to see in the news um, this week that for the the World Cup coming up that for Ireland's opening game I believe they've actually just changed the stadium mm-hmm. is that right in yeah. Australia from something like forty two and a half thousand capacity to something like eighty three and a half thousand yeah. capacity because of demand for tickets and that's that, amazing. That will be a massive audience for that game, and that's really fantastic to see women on this huge stage. Now. Yeah, well, like that game now is going to be the second biggest attended women's World Cup match of all time, and the biggest one before that was in the USA. They played it when the uh, American women's team won the World Cup final in 1999, and that was the beginning of soccer and the explosion for women. So if you think that this is going to be the second biggest game of all time, Ireland have never been to a major tournament before. They've never been to a World Cup. They're playing against the hosts on the opening day of a tournament. Why were Ireland picked for that game? They were picked for that game because they are a huge draw with the Irish diaspora and the fans, the way that they're going to buy into it. There's a reason why Ireland are being given a big showpiece event. It's because this wave has been coming and people want to get on this bandwagon. Mm. And I'm just glad for them because I just think they've deserved this moment. And it has been a long, long time coming. And if we think about like heroes and idols of times past, there's a lot of women who played football for Ireland who never had the opportunity to play at a major tournament. And and I think what this tournament is going to do for these kids is going to be like Euro 88 and Italia 90 for us when we were growing up. I genuinely think that for young boys even, not just for young girls, I just think they're going to see Ireland playing in front of 82,500 people. It'd be like selling out Croke Park. And those tickets sold out in the space of a couple of hours. These tickets are going to sell out when these go out as well. To see an Irish team playing on a global stage like that is going to be an absolute game changer for kids in this country and... I am counting down the months. I can't wait. Like to me, okay, there's a Rugby World Cup this year and there's loads of other cool things. But if you ask me what is the biggest thing this year, watching the Irish women's team playing in the World Cup, I just like, I I can't, I still pinch myself sometimes that it's actually happening. Yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. So will you get to go? Or? No, I don't no. think so. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, I know. And you know what? I would have loved it, but I think... Just with all the GA and everything that else You've is going on, I think other big things. Yeah, I think that'll be here. Yeah, I know it's like Sophie's choice. On. Yeah, I know it's hard, but yeah, but I'll be watching for sure. Yeah. And thinking about some of those women of the past that you know have fought for so long, so that other girls now have these chances. I mean, something else that you've you've done is to write about some of the women now that have been big in sport in your book girls play too and um if we could come on to that perhaps just touch on that that i know you've probably talked about it many times that conversation you overheard which really made you think i have to sit and write this this yeah well it's funny because kids are um they just don't have a filter they just say it like it is and sometimes when you listen to them that's where you get the real nuggets of what life is all about and we were just at the zoo one day and my son was 
uh, a little bit younger than he is now and but he, he was just really on board with like just you know having those open chats and it was like he was there with his little friend Ivana he was five I think maybe and she was seven and they were just having this like uh, you know over and back girls are better boys are better girls are better boys are better and uh, I overheard Ivana saying to Luke yeah you're right Luke actually uh, boys are better and I was like Jesus we have to do something about this I left in I said Ivana why do you say boys are better and she said, well, it's just, you know, their matches are on the TV and, you know, they just, they get more stuff than we do. And I swear to God, it was like a dagger into my heart. And I just thought, how have we taught a seven-year-old girl that this is what life is? Like, that's ingrained in her. Like, you know, she didn't learn that herself. That's just the world that she sees. And we need to do something about that. And I could have written books for adults, but I've always said, if you write a book for adults, you might change 10 to 20 percent of minds if you write a book for kids you could change 80 to 90 percent of minds because they're already open to the world they're totally seeing it with their filter unadjusted they're just looking at it and telling you straight what they see and if this girl is telling me that this is the world she sees we really need to do something drastic about it and we need to do it now and i went home that night and started writing the book and i was just like this needs to happen for her and that's why the dedication in that book was for Ivana and all the other girls who thought that boys were better. Always remember that girls play too. And it's really so that she sees it, you know. And now I see her at the school all the time and she was delighted as well afterwards when the book came out because she was like, oh, you know, I, then that year the Euros was on TV. She watched all the matches and now she's playing soccer and, you know, she sees it as well for, for what it is. And like, even if it changed even just her class, like I've been into her class to talk to them and I've been into the school, I've been into loads of schools or whatever. Even if it's just the ones who I've seen and there's been a small touch point, that's still hundreds of kids. But if you look at it on a broader scale, if those kids talk to their parents, then their parents start to see it. That's where the change comes because then the parents go, well, maybe I'll take her down to that match to see, not just my son. Maybe we'll, you know, just start filtering it through really quickly. But because kids don't have a filter, Kids will go home and they'll say to their parents, Mom, why aren't you putting the girls' game on the TV? And that's where the real change comes. So, um, yeah, I think, look, the books have been more successful than I ever thought was possible. But I, the, the thing that, like, really gave me the most joy in it is actually just watching the way that the kids interacted with it and the way, hearing those kind of conversations that I have seen real change. And that has been amazing. Yeah, well, congratulations with that. Thanks. And they're, be they're, just, they're just beautiful books. It's not just the content, they're fantastic athletes but the illustrations by well, well, female illustrators. Yeah. Um, and the, the, I, I love the way you did that. There's a little sort of story on each one. And, and it seemed that you were quite keen to show not just the success, but actually each one of them had, you know, they've had their challenges. It's not easy to become yeah. a big successful Well, that's, that was important. Like those few things, first of all, having all of five being female uh, illustrators as well was really important to me because I didn't want this just to be a book that just celebrated sport. I wanted to be a book that celebrated Irish female success. And that includes the illustrators. And once I said it to them, they were all on board immediately, which was amazing to be able to get the caliber of illustrator on board that we did. And then the other thing was with the athletes, when I rang them all, they, like, they said, yeah, 100%, I'm on board with this. They all wanted to do it. And I said, this is not really just a list of your achievements. I want it to be inspiring to kids because I want kids to say, okay, maybe you had issues with your weight or your mental health, or maybe you weren't the strongest or the fastest. And I wanted kids to realize that it's not linear. You know, not none of these girls just woke up one day and said, okay, I'm going to be the fastest girl in my class. 
it all comes with hard work and dedication and lots of no's like you know I've I've seen that in my own career it's not ever straightforward and if kids realize that they're more likely to stay with it further into their own futures because they'll realize oh wow that girl it actually didn't work out for her straight away so maybe if I get dropped off the under 14 camogie team it doesn't mean that I don't play camogie anymore it just means that I come back stronger and you know whether it's sport or whatever it is that they realize that resilience can be learned from a really young age and that was important to me and it was really important to the athletes as well like they didn't want this to just be uh, a book that gets thrown aside that's about you know a list of their achievements they really wanted kids to know something about them so uh, yeah I've loved that too the thing is it needs to be rewritten because there's so many of them have had so much more success since I said that to Rachel Blackmore and Kelly Harrington I was like geez I'd nearly need to rewrite a chapter on you guys every year which is uh, which makes it great yeah, amazing you know? and actually um I think it was Lindsay Pete who said that her, when her son read it with her, and he's like, "Wow, Mum, I didn't, I didn't know you were so good at all these different sports." Yeah. It's like, God, as as women, we don't even we don't even show off our own children about That's how it. good we are. I you know, know, I mean, so it's it's great to be singing and praises. Yeah. And, and I think that was kind of half the crack for them as well. Like that, none of them had ever been profiled like that either before. So like they were all really delighted. Like, and it's funny. I, I mean, I have three girls, so I've really enjoyed reading it with them. But I was thinking, actually, God. You know, parents out there need to get and buy it for their sons as well because totally. in a way boys have to be re- realize that what achievements women are make, making and be inspired by women as well because there is that conditioning and I think although nowadays boys will probably it's obvious they get girls play too they see girls playing soccer and other things but there might still be that misconception that yeah that they're still boys are still going to be naturally more gifted at it or something it's kind of in the conditioning and it's actually that you know kind of trying to re-educate them on totally that well. yeah and I think the big thing for me is actually that they just see the accessibility like when the women's euros was on we had it on here all the time or you know I'd say to Luke do you want to go and watch the Irish team playing and he'd just straight away go boys or girls and I'd be like oh girls and he'd be like okay cool but he's not asking because I don't want to go if it's the girls he's just genuinely oh, which one are we going to watch boys or girls and I'd be like oh girls this time we'll go to see the boys the next time and it's just normal in our house that we go to watch both of them and I think that's a big thing for parents that you just you don't have to shove it down their throats but you just by putting it in front of them kids then see that that's normal um and I suppose just in terms of your job that there, there have been great strides in terms of a greater equality in sort of sports broadcasting we are seeing lots lots more women on the screens presenting um you were obviously have the first female presenter of the sunday sport show on rte one and on the radio and at that time i thought i think i read that you were probably more concerned about being, yeah. being so young at the time not so much about being being a woman but um but i wonder you know given the change that we've seen how much further would you say there is to go or are there more barriers to be broken down more broadly speaking yeah it's definitely changed it's been better when I go into a press conference now there are more women in the room but there are still probably 70% men so I, I don't necessarily think we ever need to get to a situation where there's more women in the room or you know like as in it's 80% women and 20% men I don't think that's what we're driving for I think it's just that you would walk into those environments and you don't notice it you know, that that to me would probably be where the real change is. What I do see is even when I lecture, I'm seeing a lot more women in the classes, which is a good thing because it means that they see it as a genuine career. Whereas like I would consider myself just very lucky that I haven't come through at a time when I think it was changing a little bit and they probably were looking for more women. Whereas now 
it's probably just the best person comes through and there tends to be lots of men and lots of women like in my department in sport there's I'd say it's probably it's probably nearly 50% women like there's an awful lot of women working in RT sport which is a good thing but it's just to encourage young female journalists in particular that they know it's a welcoming environment and that they have just as big a chance of succeeding as a boy does that's still probably a problem I would say in the print section you're still not seeing many female um, print journalists like even on a daily basis apart from freelancers like Cleana Foley who's brilliant there aren't that many daily beat female writers so there's obviously an issue there still so I think there's a long way to go in terms of just making sure that it happens across the industry and not just like in flashlight places like TV looks very glamorous. You turn it on, you see lots of women and you think, oh, that's great. There's loads of them. But actually just drilling a little deeper and realizing, are we bringing enough people through in all of the sectors? That's probably the key focus, I think, over the next couple of years. And it strikes me, sort of reading about you preparing for this, that You've always obviously worked extremely hard, but you've been keen to kind of have a sense of humour. You've yeah. never been afraid to, you know, laugh at yourself, you know, as you said, be a bit of a messer. That's kind of, is that would you say, has that helped you as well? Yeah, and that's probably, I would have thought, what breaks down those barriers with lads as well, that they know you're not a prima donna coming in here trying to be all about yourself on television or anything like that. I think anyone who works with me knows that, that it's probably the absolute opposite, actually. Um, and to be fair, you probably in this gig would want to be a bit like that because if you're a bit too precious about yourself, it's going to be a fairly short career. You know, like at the end of the day, I it's not really about me either. Like I'm there to just say, hurry up, the match is here. Here's what's happening or whatever. I've always liked, particularly like on Sunday Sport with a lot of the GAA pundits, being able to just laugh at what's happening in front of you and like making mistakes, like you're going to make mistakes. Like, I mean, I wasn't that long on Sunday sport when I said shit on the radio and I was like, geez, I'm going to get fired for this, you know, but actually being able to go, okay, right. That was a mistake. That won't happen again. But being able to kind of laugh it off eventually. Now at the time I was probably dying inside. Whereas if that happened now, I'd be just like, listen, grand, move on. We'll be fine. You're not perfect. Everyone knows you're not perfect. And you need to be able to be like that because I think the better, the people in Ireland love good people with a good sense of humour. And so the more that they think that you're somebody they'd like to have a pint with and have a bit of crack with, the more likely they are to want to watch you or listen to you. If they think you're an absolute pain in the hole and you're boring, nobody wants to watch that because nobody wants to spend their Saturday night or their Sunday afternoon listening to somebody like that. So I've always been why not try to be the same Jackie that you'd meet on the street, on the air? And that's not always possible because sometimes television in particular, you might have three minutes here or four minutes here. It's very uh, tight and it's not always easy to have the crack. But when there are opportunities to do it, I always like to take them. And radio probably allowed me to do that more than television does. So uh, that'll be the biggest challenge now to try to make sure that I still uh, remain trying to have the crack when I'm on the Sunday game as much as I did on Sunday sport too. Now, um, Jackie, we were talking before about some of the, the athletes you're writing about and, you know, challenges and obstacles and things that can happen in life. And you have had some big obstacles and difficulties mm-hmm. in your life as well. And I know you've lost your brother to, in an accident, I think now 12 years mm-hmm. ago now. Um, and we also, you're an ambassador for Cry, mm-hmm. which is charity close to our hearts actually here on the podcast because Sarah's auntie and uncle actually founded that yeah. after the, the death of their son Peter to a sudden cardiac death so the, these have been some big 
you know, shocking events that have happened. And mm. I just wonder, you know, how you have managed to deal with that grief over time. I've read you say that has been one of your biggest challenges. Yeah, it's hard because it's not the natural order either. Like certainly in our house, and it would be the same with Peter Green when, when he dies, your, your parents don't expect to bury one of their children. Mm. It's just not the natural order of life. And I do think, you know, every family struggles with it in different ways. For us, the hardest thing is the suddenness of it. You know, when somebody dies in a car accident, they're there one day and they're not. Or if somebody has a sudden cardiac arrest, they're there one day and they're, it's, they're not. It's not an illness where everyone's had some time to get used to it. And there's no, like, don't get me wrong, in any situation, grief is horrific. But I think the suddenness of it is was particularly hard for us to manage. Um the fact that he was 25 and like had so much more life to give, I think was the, the really hard part. I think really when I reflect on it, the thing that probably got us through it really was the fact that he had written this bucket list with my mom two nights before he died. And I just, I'll never know for as long as I live how or why he did that. But it was just one of those really bad nights. And he just said to my mom, I just don't know if I want to do what I'm doing anymore. And then my mom, I don't know how or why, but she took out a sheet of paper and started writing down all the things that he wanted to be. And like the night that I got home when he died, it was there on the table. And I said, ma'am, what, what's the story with the, with the page? And she was like, that's Sean's wishes. And I was like, what? Like, how? Like, how many 25-year-old men do you know who would sit down with their mother and write down all the things that they want to be? It was like the weirdest sign that something was left for us to do and I think really for my mom and dad in particular it gave them a focus for their grief that they could do something you know and I think probably the same for Michael and Mary Green when your child gets taken away so suddenly like that you need somewhere to focus your energy and the same way that they did in setting up cry and, and actually helping other families my parents thought okay well let's do the bucket list we'll raise some money for cry so we can help other families but let's also direct our grief into something really positive where we were running marathons we were running pubs we were doing a triathlon like you know loads of fun stuff like two days after me and Shane got married we uh, had all of our wedding guests run the Cork City Marathon and so Sean Did they know that when they were invited? Well, no, because <laughs> Sean died six months before we got married. And then we were like, will we, you know, push out the wedding or what will we do? And then we kind of made the decision as a family that we needed a positive occasion because after so much grief, I think we just thought, let's just do this and let's bring everyone together. So we did it. And then by way of it, we had this bucket list and we were like, look, let's do the marathon. And so I thought we'll get 26 people to do one mile each. And so we sent it out in the invites, by the way, we're going to be doing this on the Monday. <clears throat> and I thought a few people would say grand mm. and then it'll be mostly us because everyone will be hung over and miserable. Everyone wanted to do it. So we ended up having like, I think we had over a hundred people ran in the marathon. We all had the t-shirts and so everyone around Cork got really behind it and everyone knew about it. But it was a really lovely way for everyone to feel united in grief and to do something really positive. And actually it really helped us as a family because it just allowed us to know that he had a legacy beyond when he died and like you know one of he just before he died he was a, about to become a professional or a semi-professional motorbike racer and uh eugene laverty who's one of the most famous irish motorbike racers won a race that year on the world superbike circuit and he took out one of the t-shirts during the press conference and dedicated the race to sean and it was really lovely because it took 
what was a very local grief to a global stage. And, you know, my mom and dad in the aftermath have set up our own. We have a team now that race on the World Superbike stage. And like it just it has really given them a purpose that his life really means something. You know, this he'll be 12 years dead this year. And I think just for a family to have something like that and a real connection to him still is really important and I think that's probably been a big guiding light for us and also the perspective it gives you when you lose somebody in your family I always say this but like you know I never worry about what's the worst thing that can happen because the worst has already happened to us so everything else is manageable like everything in my life now like not getting a job or whatever grand okay you'd be devastated but like it's nothing like that grief so everything else any other challenge is surmountable and we have that perspective now so that's probably been the, the biggest learning for us you know because i guess after a shock like that it, i mean it could make you fearful of, of these things happening Did you yeah and that came into it at all or? to be honest no because like in, okay the biggest thing really is that you're you're dealing with the shock of that person not being there anymore but it does make you really appreciate the people who are because, yeah, you can be afraid that, OK, something might happen to my family because, you know, we've had this terrible grief and I don't ever want to go through that again. But you also say, OK, what's on my bucket list? What do I want to do? Like, what do we want to do as a family? So like like me and Shane, the next year, we rented this ridiculously overpriced house for a year because we were like, let's go and live there for the crack for a while. We went to the Super Bowl. We went on a Lions tour. We were just like let's just do it let's just do all the things that we want to do because I don't want to have regrets and I'm really like that now so like I'm generally if you ask me to do something I generally try to find a way to say yes rather than no because my perspective is well what if that was me what if that happened what if I'm not here next week or what if I get sick or what if something happens like that you can't you can't limit yourself by putting barriers around to stop you from living you have to find a way to say well if Sean left all of these things unfinished, I don't want to do that. So, you know, it, it's terrible that his life got taken away at 25 years of age. I'm 39 now and still have lots more that I'd like to accomplish. So it's actually just putting things in place that make you think like that, that make you say, okay, let's go and do that. Let's say yes to that. Let's take the kids. We went to New Zealand a couple of years ago, took the kids in a camper van, drove around, like had an amazing holiday for six weeks. But it was just because like, why wouldn't we do that you know so I think that's the big thing I'm probably not fearful of it I'm probably more aware that anything can happen nothing is promised so just do the things that you really want to do so you've sort of it's that sort of that extra kind of motivation from having that perspective totally yeah and maybe yeah. lots of people can have that in different ways but I know that I have that because of what we've lost you know you might people might say you could have been that way anyway but I, I don't think I would have been I think it's it's purely based on understanding what life was and what life is now like I have two kids my sister has two kids our brother never met them you know like that's heartbreaking on a daily basis not just when the person is gone like I've always said this sometimes with grief and with families everybody is really upset for the family in the moment and people go to the funeral and they come there in their droves and everybody's like oh my god it's so terrible it's terrible for you this week but actually it's terrible for our family forever you know we have weddings family occasions christmas every year like there's always occasions where he's not there but it's actually just like you know my sister is coming home next week and she's bringing her kids and we'll all be here my mom and dad will be here and it'll be great but 
Sean should be here. You know, that's the hard part. It's not just at Christmas. It's the random Wednesdays when you'd love him to be here having the crack with the kids and that they've never met him. Like that stuff is, is the really difficult thing. But you can't stop yourself from living either. You have to be able to say, well, what would he want you to do? Like, he's fine. Whatever he's doing, I'm sure he's there somewhere keeping an eye on us. But I'm damn sure he'd want us to be having the crack and living the life because he there was no better person than having the crack now than him. So uh, he would want that as well. And, and I'd want that if it was in reverse as well. So you have to kind of just live and, f- and find ways of, of being happy. Mm-hmm. Thank you for talking about that because I think yeah, no people worries. listening, especially if they've been through something similar, will find it will help. Well, I hope so. And look, that's half of it as well. I think by speaking about it, I would have got a lot from other people speaking about their grief. And I do think it's important because you never know what people are going through either. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really important. So th- thinking about um, life now, and as you mentioned, you've got the kids, so very busy. Um, I suppose that the sort of the terror of the work-life balance question is always quite a, a big one. I just wonder, managing the career that's really taking off and, and a family, how... how yeah, it's it, it's definitely challenging, but I think for us, one thing is, me and Shane have been going out since we were, since I was 21, so this wasn't just my dream, it was his dream as well for me, so we have been invested in this all the way along together, so... I don't think it ever was like me going on a flyer and saying, okay, I'm going to be gone and I'm off chasing the dream. So everybody in this house has been committed to this. So I think we've known from the outset that I was going to be working weekends and we were just going to make it work. So that's fundamentally what makes it work in this house. The other thing really is just understanding what you can do and what you can't do. And I think I've probably been in the last couple of years more aware of that. Whereas before I would have just been like, yeah, 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 I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Whereas I think now I'm much more okay, that's manageable, but that's not. So um, saying no to things, whereas previously I might not have, I've probably become a lot better at saying no and only doing what's right for us as a family and making sure that we're not taking on too much work. And also my husband has a big successful job as well. So it's trying to support him when he needs support and then him supporting me when I need support and just making it work. Listen, it's not perfect all the time. Sometimes we drop balls and, you know, you have to kind of just manage that together as a family. But like, for the most part, I think we've we've done well and we've managed to do it together and we've got a great life and a happy family and that's kind of all that we asked for, you know? So um, it's not always easy and it's a it's a juggle, but to me, it's a juggle that's worth it. What about finding time for you? I think you have got back into yeah, the basketball That's the biggest recently. thing. I would say the biggest regret that I probably had was after Luke, I didn't give myself enough time. And I think a lot of moms probably do this as well, where you're so focused on looking after your kids and giving them everything that you're not really worried about you. And then you probably, I probably let it slip a little bit. I wasn't exercising enough. I just wasn't healthy and just not living the way that I would have always lived before. Whereas I think after Lily, I was much more aware of, okay, I need to get back to the gym for me. You know, I need to play basketball for me. And I'm a better mom when I'm happy and healthy and fit. So let's try to focus more on those hours where when she went to Montessori and now when she's in school, that I actually take those hours for me and I drop them off, then go to the gym, then come back and then do things for me. And then I feel better and then they feel better because I'm in a better mood. So, um, I think you probably need to see it yourself because other people can tell you, oh, you know, what about this? Or what about join a gym or whatever? But if you don't see it yourself, you're not going to make any real changes. So as I just thought, 
okay, if I start working out and I start feeling better again, then everything in my life gets better. So that's kind of the way that that's the approach that I took. And I definitely in the last number of years now, I'm as happy and fit and healthy as I've ever been, which definitely makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, yeah, I think that's really encouraging and it's, it's true. I think we can all relate to it that, you know, especially when you first have children and you actually think that it's, it's being a good mum to sacrifice. Totally. Yourself. That's yeah. kind of, that's just the, the mindset. Well, that's what that you think. That, that's, that's the what mindset. You exactly. And like you said, you kind of have to, I think we all get to that point. You get kind of realisation that actually, if you don't look after yourself, then completely else will fall. Oh, apart. 100%. But like my kids know it now too. And they know that mommy plays and daddy plays. And they know that like on a Thursday night, Shane has a, or Tuesday night, Shane has a match. On a Thursday night, I have a match. And that's totally normal to the kids. And that's a good thing too, because it shows them the equality in this house that mummies and daddies can still play when they're old and that they might want to do that. So that's we a good thing. We are considered old. To yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They think I'm absolutely a dinosaur. So yeah. yeah my, my, my youngest time had a lot of lines on my face yesterday. I was like, great. Yeah, yeah. they'll get you. I told you, kids have no filter. Yeah. No filter. That's um, and just finally, I suppose. Um, I mean, I read that when you were young, you um, used to have a, a sort of a cardboard cutout for oh, TV yeah. and a bit of microphone. And so you, there was perhaps just from when you were young, real interest in, in presenting and talking about sport. But I suppose lots of us kids do that. And then you grow up and it, not many make mm-hmm. it into a, a career like yourself. And I just wonder, is there any kind of, I mean, we've mentioned resilience, but other characteristics you think that that really boils down to? Well, my mum and dad, first of all, would have always said they thought I was going to be on the stage because I think I was doing that a lot now when I was younger. I was probably play acting and loved entertaining them and loved kind of, you know, having the crack and whatever. So probably a lot of it is derived from the personality that I had as well, I would say. Um, The other thing is just knowing what you want and doing it. Like I had lots of people who told me that's not a job and you'll never get a you'll never get a job like my career guidance teacher in school told me I should be a PE teacher because I was really into sport and I was a good communicator and all that and she thought I would have been made a good PE teacher and I did an English degree with the thought of maybe I will go teaching if the media doesn't work out but I knew it wasn't the right career for me now don't get me wrong I actually still think I like teaching and I really enjoy the lecturing but my dream job was to do what I'm doing And I was going to pursue that. So I do think for people, it's actually saying, if you really want it, do it. And you're going to get loads of no's. Like I had loads of no's. I had loads of jobs I didn't get. You know what I mean? So you kind of need to go, okay, Grant, I'm going to keep trying it. And if it doesn't work out eventually, then I will do something else. But you have to go hammer and tongs at it. You only get one crack at this. So you might as well do something that you love. That's the way I feel. And like, I'm very lucky that it's worked out for me. But maybe it wouldn't have. You know, maybe there's loads of other things I could have been. Who knows? But I felt like because I really wanted it, I'll just go and I'll work really hard and I'll take all the things that maybe other people didn't want to do. Like I went to America, did an internship in Mississippi, like I was population of Irish person one, you know. So it's like, let's just go and throw yourself into this and do loads of things that maybe the other people won't do. And then you'll come back and they'll want to give you a job. And that's why it worked, because I was willing to do whatever it took and that's probably the same in my job. Like I took loads of jobs, like I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. I was working seven days a week for multiple different people and people probably just saw a hardworking person who was willing to put in the graft and do whatever it took. And I, I would like to think that that's probably why I have the job I have today. Yeah. 
I think that would be a great bit of advice as well to pass on. I, mean, I was going to say if there was any advice for some of the, particularly the young girls we've been talking about, um, I suppose that would be one thing, just to be show that willingness, work hard, but totally. be open to... 100%. I think you just have to be really willing to work at it, but you also have to be the kind of person that is collaborative. You know, like nobody wants somebody who's all in it for themselves. So what I would say is work extremely hard but bring everybody else in on it. Tell them what you're doing. You know, make sure people know, hey, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think? Or whatever. A collaborative approach I've always found has been a good one as well because people who work in teams tend to thrive. If you look at a lot of the the CEOs and a lot of the C-suite women, a lot of them, and I've seen studies to prove this, even recent ones done by KPMG, 90% of them played sport. Because successful women are generally people who've tended to thrive in teams and good communication skills and all that. So I would say putting yourself in an environment where you do have teamwork um, in your career is a good thing as well, because I do think that that brings the best out of women in particular. Oh, well, that's a fantastic note to finish on. Well, thanks so much. It's been an absolute no pleasure. No worries. Thanks a million for Thank having you. me. Cheers. Thank you.